welcome to the Archimedes podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, the evidence-based podcast that takes you through the little evidence-based questions and answers that people have generated in the course of their paediatric care. You too could be an Archimedes author, maybe even an Archimedes interviewee. Why don't you pop onto the website, look at the instructions to authors and scoot down to the Archimedes section and think about what clinical problems you've answered with evidence and write them up in a systematic way. You too could be part of the exciting things that are about to follow. So, for instance, this month we're looking at the rationality of decision-making and its absence sometimes, whether you should use topical or systemic antibiotics if someone's got a discharging ear but they've also got grommets in situ. And we're also looking to see if it's worth looking at vitamin D status in children that present with growing pains. First up, our thought about how evidence-based medicine happens and what to do in practice. Take about the situation where people seem to make seemingly irrational decisions on the basis of the evidence presented in front of them. Why might this be? For instance, why is it that we don't hear patients saying, I regret nothing, or singing in a French way? Well, it's an uncommon position to look back after a decision and having no regret about what you've been doing. You see, most people, rather than aiming for the maximal expected utility, that is the sort of mathematically most sensible decision in a particular course for an entire community to take, sometimes they make sort of irrational-ish decisions and their psychological theory behind it. Well, take the following two situations. You're about to be given a million pound, but you're given the opportunity to gamble on it to make it five million. There's an 11% chance, if that gamble works, that you'll get the five million, but a 1% chance of ending up with nothing. Now, if you maximise the expected utilities, i.e. if you rationalise what will happen if you take all of that 100% of events and if you were to do it multiple, multiple times, then... If you take the bet, your average take-home will be 1.43 million. But most people won't take that bet. In a different scenario, when perhaps you gamble a 10% chance of getting 5 million, a 1% chance of nothing, and the rest of the time you end up with a million, well, the rational decision here is the average take-home will only be 1.38 million, less than it was last time. But most people in this situation would take the bet. So you're given a million, but there's a 1% chance of losing it, and there's a 11% chance of getting 5 million, they don't take the bet. You're about to be given an opportunity to take part in a bet, where 10% of the time you'll get 5 million, 1% of the time you'll end up with nothing, and the rest of the time you'll end up with a million. Most people will take the bet. The phrasing and the phraseology and the way you think about things is important in how you get to the answer. In many situations, the regret that you might have for decisions that you haven't made make more impact upon you than the rationality of the situation. For games like this with the magical money tree, the possibility of losing a million looms more than a 1% chance of not getting the million. And it may be that similar sorts of processes are in play when we make major treatment decisions. So the choice to do nothing 
is always a more difficult choice than the chance of doing something, even if that something has a higher overall chance of disability in death. If you want to think about it in terms of songs and deep and meaningful things, then, then what people don't sing is Je ne regret rien. But instead they sing Oh, I might regret that later. And often in a northern accent. Our first deeply unmusical case report comes from Ben McNaughton and colleagues at the Royal Belfast Hospital for Children in Northern Ireland. They talk about a six-year-old who presents to you with a very well appearance and a normal clinical examination, but with a story of intermittent leg pains around about the knee for a four-month sort of history and worsening in the evenings classical presentation of a growing pain situation. You're seeing them in secondary paediatrics, but they've already been through their GP, who's done some blood tests, including a full blood count and film, and also a vitamin D level, which is 35 on the low side. Now, the question is being asked, will supplementation of that vitamin D help with the growing pains that are being experienced? The team went away and searched through PubMed and Medline and found 14 potential hits that would give them an answer to the question about vitamin D levels and growing pains. They ended up with four of them being useful pieces of information to try to look to see what makes a difference. Two of these studies had an assessment of what happened when you gave vitamin D to kids who had growing pains, and three of them, that is, one of them did two things, uh, had a look at the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency in the group that were presenting with what seemed like growing pains, or was also called non-specific and lower limb pain. One of the studies was from Korea, and they showed an association between low levels of vitamin D and the growing pain situation. They found around half the kids had low vitamin D levels, as compared to about 30% in the general population. A study of 100 kids from Pakistan showed that 94% of them had low vitamin D levels, but they didn't give us a clear number that were likely to be vitamin D deficient in the general population, although it was felt to be quite a lot higher than what they would normally see in practice. And then 120 kids in Turkey were examined, with 86% of them having low vitamin D levels, with some data from their population showing that somewhere between 40 and 60% of kids in the general population would have low vitamin D levels, all of these in keeping with higher proportions of kids without adequate vitamin D in the group with vitamin D, with lower limb pains, with, with growing pains. But does giving them vitamin D make a difference? Well, in before and after studies, one in this group of 120 kids from Turkey and another in 33 kids uh, who were tested sort of before and after given vitamin D supplementation, both of those people in undertaking before and after studies showed that giving the kids vitamin D did seem to reduce the pain they experienced when asking them about that and unsurprisingly also increased their vitamin D levels. So what we're seeing is that there's a greater proportion of vitamin D deficiency in the growing pains population and that if you give them something, some vitamin D, it gets better. It's a little bit unclear whether it's the vitamin D or the act of giving something that seems to improve things. But given that vitamin D in itself is a reasonable thing to be having to prevent lots of other diseases, the authors conclude that it's a fair thing to do in kids who present with growing pains. Our other clinical case is from the ENT team down at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, with Wasin Ahmed taking the lead on this. 
They present a four-year-old child who had some grommets and is presented with a five-day history of left ear pain and discharge and his mum thinks it's infected. You agree and wonder if you should treat this with antibiotics as it has been going on for some time. And then the question emerges, do you use topical antibiotics to drizzle into the ear even though it's got a grommet or do you use systemic antibiotics? Clearly, the things that we're worrying about here are the induction of bacterial resistance to antibiotics, something that we should be avoiding as a world and certainly as a healthcare professional community, but also the possible ototoxicity of dribbling antibiotics directly into the middle ear. This team went off and looked through Embase and PubMed, got a whole bunch of studies, looked through the references of those as well, and came down with four RCTs that seemed to answer this question. One of them, 230 patients, split it three ways, looking at topical antibiotics, which didn't contain an amico glycoside, uh, a lowish dose of oral cormoxiclav, or just observation. Their odds ratio for failure, comparing oral to topical, was 14. That is, the odds of failing were 14 times greater with this lowish dose oral cormoxiclav. Another study took 80 patients and randomised them between topical Cipro and oral antibiotics. An odds ratio of failure here of 4. A further one, a trial of 68 patients, topical non-aminoglycoside antibiotic combination against oral amoxicillin. Odds ratio of failure, 7.3. And then another large study giving slightly contradictory results. When I say slightly, I mean 286 patients were randomised between topical and oral cormoxiclav and their odds ratio of failure wasn't different than 1 and the point estimate was 1.5. This study was a little bit different in that it withdrew anybody that ended up with a positive culture, which was quite a lot of them, or anybody that didn't comply with the way that they were meant to be giving all of the treatments all of the time which makes it a little bit unlike clinical practice where I guess you give the antibiotics and you don't then chase them down and tell them they're not allowed to be giving you the answer if they came back with a positive or go around telling them off and refusing to deal with them if they don't have the antibiotics the way you told them to. The group have also gone on to do a, a, a very basic form of meta-analysis to draw these together and come up with a significant odds ratio of failure of around about four and a half. This has to be set alongside the fact that in the first study, the 230 which had a randomization to observation, you'd expect about 40% of patients to get better anyway, even if you don't do any form of antibiotics. So if a patient presents really early in, in illness, it may be the most appropriate thing to do is wait for a couple of days and see if it goes away on its own. But then if it doesn't, to use a topical rather than a systemic antibiotic to treat this. However, that antibiotic should be a non-aminoglycoside containing antibiotic because what none of these things have done is had a look at the safety of drizzling an aminoglycoside related antibiotic directly into the middle ear. So, as you've heard, the Archimedes podcast has a variety of things going on, from singing to ENT to general paediatrics. Why don't you bring something to the mix? A specialist area? In neonatology even? We are open to all forms of approach to evidence in child health. Pop onto that website, look at the instructions to authors, and join us next month when we have more Archimedes from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. Goodbye. Goodbye.